The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here. Good to have a packed house. Good to uh, start a new week. I trust that the Lord is uh, being gracious to you and meeting your needs as you begin uh, this new academic week. I want to uh, welcome some guests here. Uh, Norm Hoyt and the group from Forest Springs is here. Uh, you got an email from Dean Swift earlier this morning regarding uh, the leadership program there. Uh, Norm, you and your group stand. We want to welcome you and uh, thank you for uh, your service. If you're looking for a significant way to uh, grow spiritually and to grow in your leadership, uh, I can think of few ways that are more effective than working in the ministry of Christian camping. I've told parents for years, you want to you give your kids a good experience, send them to Christian camp. You want to change their lives, send them to work at a Christian camp. And so uh, we're grateful to Norm and the group that's here and uh, trust that uh, there'll be a blessing and encouragement to you as you think about opportunities in front of you for serving the Lord at Forest Springs. Uh, potentially. We uh, also want to keep in prayer uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the Middle East and Israel uh, and the situation there. We appreciate uh, the groups that are praying around campus now uh, for that situation and uh, again uh, be uh, thinking about the severity and seriousness of what's going on in the world uh, even as you're enjoying relative uh, peace and comfort here uh, in Langhorn and on this campus. Um, Keep an eye on the calendar, a lot going on as we uh, move forward, and uh, I also want to encourage you to take full advantage of the chapel programs. Friday, we had a great chapel here with uh, B.J. Hess, the chair of the board, and I think the rest of the semester uh, looks like it will be a blessing and encouragement to you as well. So do plan on attending chapel as often as you can uh, to receive the spiritual encouragement that we design into the program here at the university. And with that said, I want to continue uh, this next installment in my series for the year, What in the World Are We Doing? A Biblical Perspective on Our Roles, Responsibilities, and Relationships. I've been focusing uh, this year on what it means for us to think about the various roles and relationships and responsibilities we have in this world as God's people and to think about them biblically. And many of those overlap with what we refer to uh, in the academic spheres as the social institutions. We talk, starting out, talking about marriage and family, we'll talk about the economy and work, we'll talk about citizenship and our place in all of that, we'll talk about education, we'll talk about uh, your relationship and work in the church. But this morning I want to continue uh, with the second installment on marriage and family. As I said last time that we were together, this will probably take two or three, I'm thinking three at this point, I'd like to wrap up uh, marriage and then talk about uh, children and parenting the next time and then move on to another role, uh, relationship and responsibility that we have. So today I want to deal with marriage and family part two. Uh, last time that I was with you, we were looking at the Genesis account and in particular the fact that marriage is instituted by God and embedded in creation. He creates Humankind in his image, he looks upon Adam and decides that it is not good for him to be alone. There is no one suitable for him. And so the creation narrative tells us that God then created woman and that the two become one flesh and then they are to be fruitful and multiply. So from the very beginning, family is instituted <clears throat> by God's design and for his glory, but also for the good of the world. God declares that this is good and this is how the world is ordered and structured, beginning with the family. Husbands and wives, men and women who are husbands and wives who raise up 
children who are sons and daughters who themselves become husbands and wives and have their own children. In fact, we looked at even in the point where the children of Israel are being sent into exile, they're told to, to take wives and to give their children in marriage and to multiply. Do not decrease while you are in exile. You are to continue to be fruitful and multiply. So even under adverse situations, even under the judgment of God through the exile, the children of God were to continue perpetuating the family. And while the gift of singleness and celibacy is granted to some, what we looked at is that God's design is for men and women to come together in marriage to be fruitful and multiply as God provides and allows. And so that's what we did last time, looking at how the, the ways in which marriage is embedded in creation, that it has a high purpose and a high value in the eyes of God. I also made some uh, sort of uh, assertions that in the world in which we live, the institution of marriage and family is being undermined in subtle and not so subtle ways. It isn't just sort of that people's values are shifting that see this as an antiquated and outdated notion, idea, or institution. There are actually attempts to establish policy that would undermine marriage and family. The ways in which the, the construct of marriage and family is being challenged, not just in our own individual values and beliefs, but programmatically to undermine marriage and family. Very interesting, I think, there will be a pushback, in my judgment, against that kind of assault on marriage and family, not just by evangelical Christians who believe in the authority of Scripture and that it teaches a high view of marriage and family, but because the erosion of marriage is actually bad for the world. It's bad for society. <clears throat> and as a means of introduction to this message, I came across an article last week in a news outlet that I don't read too terribly much, NPR. And NPR has an article entitled, Why Children of Married Parents Do Better, But America is Moving in the Other Way. It's an article about a book written by the progressive economist Melissa Kearney. The article reads this, The economist Melissa Kearney has been both vilified and praised for her new book, The Two-Parent Privilege. How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. In the book, released last month, Kearney points out a rather obvious fact. Children raised by two parents have a much higher chance of success than those raised by one. Yet she goes even further to argue that whether parents are married or not impacts their children's success. Her argument goes against the trend in the, in the U.S. American children are increasingly being born and raised by single mothers. The U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. According to a 2019 Pew Research study, almost a quarter, or 23%, of U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. Kearney, again, a progressive economist, finds that this arrangement hurts children, widens inequality, and ultimately damages society. She is ringing the alarm bells, and she wants people to hear them and start thinking of solutions. Judging by the book's reception, she has managed to achieve at least the first part of that. I've actually, I've done exactly what I wanted, which was to start a conversation, Kearney told NPR, but I get frustrated that a lot of the initial reaction is a knee-jerk reaction. Kearney's argument that children who grow up in unmarried households are fighting the odds has progressives miffed and accusing Kearney of stigmatizing single mothers. Conservatives are celebrating her findings as validating support of marriage. 
There are a lot of folks who are uncomfortable with the idea of prioritizing one family type over another, says Kearney, whose research and work as an economist at the University of Maryland focuses on issues that most would consider progressive, poverty, inequality, family, and children. I'm not prioritizing one. I'm just recognizing the data and the evidence and the reality, Kearney says. There will be a pushback because to undermine an institution that is there at the very beginning has to be bad for the world, has to be bad for society. And so this idea of holding a high value of marriage isn't just because we believe that it is uh, part of our, 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 our life as Christians, it is actually by God's design, good for us and good for the world. But today what I want to do is thinking about all of those issues and all of those forces that are out there, this trend in America away from marriage and the impact that it will have on future generations. You're swimming in that cultural soup and there's no way that isn't affecting your thinking or influencing not just your thinking but also your coming practices regarding marriage. And I would argue even the pursuit of marriage. And so today, as promised, I am going to touch on that sacred cow dating at Cairn. If there is such a thing. Because I do think you need to be mindful of the fact that the world around you is going to affect your sensibilities regarding marriage and family. Not just your beliefs about it, but also the way in which you will approach it and practice it. And so today what I want to do is arguing from the passage of scripture that was read that we should have not just a high view of marriage in the abstract, that it was embedded in creation, but a high practicing of it, a high standard and expectation for the way in which we will carry it out, and even the way in which we will pursue it as we date in court. The passage that was read, Ephesians 5, 22 and following, is a well-known passage and a difficult one. Actually reminds me of something that, that uh, Mrs. Hess said on Friday, that there are times when we, in acknowledging God, we are confronted with things in the scripture that make us uncomfortable, that we'd rather not agree with, but we really don't have a choice in that. We don't get to rewrite the Bible in a way that makes us feel more comfortable or more accepting of the truths that it includes. The writers of the New Testament were specific in their outlining of teaching on the the, the institution of marriage and how it was to be exercised as Christians. But it's important to realize that this passage of scripture, which begins in chapter five, verse 22, with wives submitting to their husbands and husbands as the head of the wife, loving wife, their wives as Christ loved the church, is, is in the flow of thought of the entire epistle. It's not a one-off. I think I referenced this last time. It's not as though the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians who are living in a secular culture and giving them all this theological stuff and this is, oh, I should leave you with a few practical tips about life. No, what he's doing is actually lining out this great theological uh, understanding of what it means for us to be saved by grace through faith, the work of Jesus Christ. And then that should affect the way that we live our lives with all of the exhortations to walk worthy of him, to walk in accordance with our calling, to walk in light, to walk in love, and finally to walk as wise, not as unwise. And then he goes into these very practical outworkings of that. If you're doing that, if you hold to these theological truths, these doctrinal truths about your salvation, it should affect the way you live and it should be borne out in your relationships, roles, and responsibilities in this world. The teaching of chapter 5 verse 22 is not an add-on to keep things in order. It's an outworking of everything that's been written up until that point. 
You could make the case that when he says, but you were dead in sins, but God in Christ made you alive, therefore it should affect the way you live your marriage out. Therefore it should affect the way you parent your children. It should affect the way you do your work. Because you who were dead have been made alive by God's grace. And it should be seen in all of your relationships, responsibilities, and roles in this world. It's not isolated from the rest of the letter. It's a flow of thought that naturally goes to the most practical ways in which we live out our lives. And he is writing to Christians in a non-Christian culture. And he doesn't miss the opportunity to tell them that the way in which they walk worthy has to include the way in which they live out their married lives. We say this all the time, the Christian life is to be lived. It's not a set of beliefs that are written on a card or held on your files in your phone. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of living. The Christian life is to be lived in a particular way. And in chapter 5 and verse 15, he says this at the, at, before he goes into this, this passage on marriage. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord, will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, don't, because that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he says, wives, submit to your husband. He outlines what it means to be a Christian in relationship with other Christians, to be respectful and deferential, to be in harmony, to be one, to be loving and kind, to be worshiping the Lord together. And if that's what we do in our corporate lives as Christians, then it should be played out in our families as well. And so he dives right into this relationship between wives and husbands. He does establish an order for the marital relationship. Wives are to submit to their husbands, and husbands are the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He does establish an order, but that order is not declaring for one a burden and the other a privilege. Rather, what it does is elevate the expectations for husbands and wives together in marriage because what they are to do is live a different kind of life from those that don't know Christ. Their marriages are to be marked by a different way of honoring one another and loving one another and living life together. There is an order, but it is an order that is actually not giving two things that are dichotomous ideas or mutually exclusive from one another in terms of submission and love, but it's a practice that has a high value. It is actually esteeming marriage and giving for us responsibilities to one another that are high and weighty. Because anyone who thinks that the wife gets the short end of this deal does not fully grasp what it meant for Jesus to be the head of the church. Because being the head of the church, it says he gave himself up to death on a cross. This is not outlining husbandly privilege and wifely burden. It's actually outlining a beautiful and harmonious relationship that mirrors the relationship of Christ to the church. And it's not just to be viewed that way, it's to be lived that way. That kind of beautiful, harmonious relationship between husband and wife, like his ideal between Christ and the church. Jesus gives himself up for the church and the church becomes his bride and 
lives in submission to his authority and the harmony between Jesus and the church is to be beautiful and glorifying to the Lord. It is actually elevating the practice of marriage. It isn't actually outlining an, an antiquated or patriarchal, outdated system. It's actually saying God wants this to be good and perfect and a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And so that comes with great responsibility The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. If I was going to pick a few salient points that I want to drive home in the few moments that I have with you this morning, because I can't exhaust this topic or deal with this passage adequately, but there are a few things to remember that come leaping off the page when you read this, and that is this, that marriage is a giving over of oneself to another. It is not an enter... It is not... Marriage is not is not entered into to take. It is entered into to give. It is entered into to give. When the Apostle Paul talks about loving your wife as you love yourself, to nourish and cherish, it's because the two are seen as one flesh. It's echoing the teaching and and the truth found in Genesis chapter two and verse 24, that the two become one. So it isn't about, it isn't a structure that is sort of human in its orientation, there's a miraculous thing that happens, that husbands and wives come together and become one. And that oneness isn't just sexual, it's a oneness before the Lord, so that you love your wife as you love your own flesh, because she is in fact your own flesh. And the harmony that is experienced in that approach to marriage gives glory to God and benefits everyone, especially your children. In chapter 5 and verse 23, he talks, drives home this idea that we are to love and respect one another in marriage. In 1 Peter 3, Peter addresses the same issues as an outworking of the gospel in the lives of Christians. And he talks about husbands honoring their wives, esteeming them. Marriage then, in God's eyes, is for his glory, a sacred union where two people become one before him according to his divine purposes, dating back to the creation of all that is. And so it is to be practiced well and rightly. So, choose wisely. Choose wisely. This is an incredibly beautiful and enjoyable aspect of human life in this world. But like everything that is good and enjoyable and causes us to rejoice and blesses us, it's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be taken too lightly. It's actually to be enjoyed in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And a high view of marriage isn't just theoretical, it's actually practical. And so I want to talk just a little bit about the pursuit of it. You should beware, when thinking about marriage, of takers. People who are only in it for themselves, in a relationship for what they get out of it. Beware takers. This isn't just for marriage, this is across the board. Beware of the self-indulgent who believe that everything exists simply to gratify their appetites, their desires. Beware of the spiritually indifferent 
those that don't take faith in the Lord seriously or the Christian walk or Christian community or our mutual obligations to one another as believers, not just you and me to one another as brothers and sisters, but men towards women and women towards men, husbands to wives. Beware those who are spiritually indifferent about the way in which the faith should govern every aspect of their lives because these people will destroy marriages, whether they be husbands or wives, because marriage is a giving enterprise that you enter into to give yourself over to someone else, to become one, something different, according to the divine purposes of God for his glory and the good of the world. If you just think about it this way, Paul's exhortations and Peter's exhortations regarding marriage, they only land, by that I mean they only hit with effect and impact with those who actually want to please God with the way in which they live. And so you should be very careful about entering into a permanent relationship, a commitment that is to last your entire life with someone who cannot hear these Holy Spirit-inspired words of the apostles. Well, how do we go about pursuing marriage in the right way? How do we go about thinking about this idea of choosing wisely? Well, something comes before marriage, hopefully, and that's dating and courtship. And I certainly want to acknowledge here in front of everybody that you have authority of your parents and the authority of your church and you have different practices and beliefs. I just want to speak in general terms some observations about this particular issue. I've been around the university for a long time. I came here as a married student, free from the burden, the excessive burden that some of you bear with regard to navigating dating at Cairn. I came here as a married student, and so I became the advisor to all the unmarried students. <laughs> and I put a few couples together in my day. <laughs> With some aplomb, I might suggest. <clears throat> After I joined the faculty, I was asked to speak with the students one time to make a presentation on biblical dating. And I stood up in front of a room full of students and said, I don't think you're going to like what I have to say about biblical dating because it, it includes arranged marriages and the exchange of land and livestock. <laughs> What I will talk about is what it means to be biblical in all of your relationships, including the dating ones. Because while the Bible does not offer a blueprint or a plan for successfully courting or dating in this day in which we live, it does tell us the kinds of people that we should be and the kinds of people we should avoid. It does tell us that self-serving liars, cheats, and thieves should be avoided that we should be treating people with grace and respect and love and kindness and deference and preference. We should be treating people better than we ourselves are treated. We should be going above and beyond to exalt and esteem and to care for others. There is plenty of biblical teaching about how to carry out all relationships, which include dating relationships. 
And if I have one concern in watching this for a long time, I think you have to remember there's an old adage in athletics, you practice how you play. There's a sense in which you may have been duped into thinking that I will behave differently in marriage than I behave in dating and betrothal. That would be a mistake. The truth is we practice how we play. And a sloppy, undisciplined team in practice is generally going to perform poorly on the field. The more serious and the more integrity, the more serious you are about and the more integrity you bring to the dating experience, the better husband and wife you will be. You should take it very seriously. But I do have a few thoughts because the book of Proverbs is pretty keen on this idea says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. That a good wife and a wise wife and a prudent wife is like a crown of jewels. The idea is that choosing wisely is good for a marriage. And so you should think about that. And I have a few thoughts about it. But I do think you should first think about the way in which your understanding of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible, that, that you should be committing yourself to learning and and and. and ingesting into the way you think and the way you navigate life in this world, that your submission to biblical teaching, that faith and truth should have an impact even in the way you carry out your social life and your, particularly your romantic life. So a little sidebar on culture and dating. I have never been concerned <clears throat> about the dating culture at Cairn University on one point because I think the world's very confused about it. I think the world is extremely confused about it. It not only conflates sex and love, it conflates the whole notion of what social relationships look like, and to be honest, social media and online dating services have just been gasoline on the fire of an extremely confused and irresponsible culture. But you and I should think about it. We're here at Cairn, so what is dating look like? Well, I have a few observations, and I have to tell you, after 30 years being in service here, and longer than that since I was a student here, I can tell you it's a bit of a mess. It's no one's fault. Applause. <laughs> it's not a mess because we're worse at it than anyone else. Go anywhere, you'll see it's a mess. Why? Because we're human beings. We're human beings in a Christian context. So we have standards for your deportment and behavior. When the world says that dating actually means moving forward from dating to sexual activity to long-term relationships, which may or may not include marriage, we don't say that. We don't believe that. Dating for you is the opportunity to explore relationships with members of the opposite sex as potential spouses, where you will enter into a union before God that is lifelong, and to be carried out in a particular way. So we have a different view of it. So it's no wonder that we're stressing about it, but there are a couple of things that happen here and in almost every other Christian college that holds a high standard for people in community. And it's this. You're leery about getting to know people of the opposite sex because if you are seen together in public, people will assume that a ring is on the horizon. 
And so you refrain from getting to know people socially who might be a good potential spouse because of the social pressure that means if I'm seen with so-and-so, that means somebody else might think I'm off the market or someone else might think that I'm on my way to getting married. For crying out loud, could you mix and get to know one another and take the pressure off of yourselves? I give you permission as the president <laughs> to be seen one Saturday with one person and next Saturday with someone else. Because a coffee does not mean a family of five. It means a coffee. And I promise you that in the spring of your senior year, the world will not open up and swallow you while you disappear from the social scene, never to meet a member of the opposite sex again. The old fear of ring by spring your senior year, please choose more wisely than that. You're making a lifelong commitment that is supposed to bring glory to God as part of his original design for men and women at the creation of the world. Do not fall victim to the objectification of members of the opposite sex. Think about what you are looking for in a potential husband or wife and avoid the liars, the cheats, the thieves, the self-indulgent, the posers, the takers, the mean-spirited. Look for the kind, the gracious, the compassionate, the forgiving, the insightful, the wise, the prudent, the industrious, the diligent, the vigilant, the faithful, the committed followers of Jesus Christ. They are in your midst. Start talking to one another. Start getting to know one another. I recognize the pressure that exists in a social context like this, but you've been given an opportunity to be in a place like this that is committed to what we're committed to, that doesn't have some of the ridiculous notions and rules that institutions like ours held in the past about fraternization between men and women. We want you to get to know one another and to explore long-term relationships, friendships, dating relationships, engagements, and eventually marriage. But we want you to do it as biblical Christians who are not just adhering to a set of rules, but understand your mutual obligation to one another as human beings made in the image and likeness of God who have also been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so it should, it should come to bear on the way you think about one another and treat one another and act towards one another. All of you are dating someone who is someone else's son or daughter. You will have sons and daughters one day. This isn't about your own immediate gratifications, your own immediate appetites or desires. There's something larger at stake. God gave men and women the gift of marriage and told them to be fruitful and multiply because it would enrich their lives and the world and the lives of their descendants. This thing, marriage and family, has huge impact. You shouldn't take it lightly, but you should get about the business of it. Marriage is under attack in the culture in which we live. There's no question. But it is a God-ordained gift 
that we should cherish. It starts with us as Christians. The way that we think about marriage, the way that we practice marriage, even the way in which we pursue marriage. I can tell you this, people ask me all the time, how will I know if it's God's will? How will I know what God's will is for me regarding marriage? And what you mean is that this particular man or this particular woman, I'm telling you, if you went to the, to the effort of trying to just be Christian in the way you think about and interact with one another, the way you treat one another, the way you pursue one another, if you actually allowed the Bible to inform the way you evaluate one another and the way that you care for one another, you will soon find yourself with several good options for betrothal and marriage. Brothers and sisters, you and I, as God's people, don't just have the opportunity to enjoy marriage. We have the obligation to uphold it. At the close of the, I teach a civics class, so pardon the illustration, but at the close of the Constitutional Convention, someone asked Dr. Benjamin Franklin, what have you brought this day? What have you wrought this day? And Franklin is known to have said, a republic if you can keep it. And I've told my class on numerous occasions, I don't think that Franklin meant keep it like hold on to it, keep someone else from taking it. I think he meant keep it like you keep bees or a garden or peace. You must attend to it. You must nurture it. You must care for it. We don't just have the opportunity to enjoy marriage. We have the obligation before the Lord to uphold it, to keep it in that way, to care for it, to nourish it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for your goodness and grace, we give you thanks. For all the blessings of this life, we give you thanks. For your word, we give you thanks. For the gifts of redemption and forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. For your creation, we give you thanks. And for the gift of marriage and family, we give you thanks. We acknowledge that you are a righteous and holy God, the creator and sustainer of all that is. We ask that you would cause us to acknowledge you in all our ways, including the ways in which we enjoy our relationships with one another, with our friends, with our colleagues and cohorts, with those that we are dating, with those to whom we're engaged, with those to whom we are married. Father, we pray that we would not neglect this most important aspect of our lives, to have your word and the gospel come to bear on these roles and responsibilities and relationships. And I pray for these students that you would give them grace, that your spirit would be at work in them to keep them from sin, to keep them from self-indulgence, to keep them from the temptation to satisfy their own appetites. Rather, Father, do a work in each one of them to make them wise to make them oriented towards others, to give them the grace to be giving people. Father, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.